Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome back to a very informative episode of Conspiranormal. Today we have uh, our guest Robert Sullivan. Robert Sullivan, who's going to talk about Freemasonry and the Royal Arch of Enoch. Yes, very very fascinating topics. And then later on, we're going to listen to some bird sounds of the, uh, of the African. Orient. Yes, of the African Oriental loon. Very exciting, folks. Yes. We'll be right back on Conspiranormal. Okay, we're back on Conspiranormal. We had our little uh, NPR intro there, but uh, <laughs> now we're back to normal. Luke's been listening to too much NPR at work, yeah. and that's why that uh, we, we did that. So uh, <clears throat> we have on the line uh, Robert Sullivan, the fourth, and he has a book called The Royal Arch of Enoch. And I heard Robert about, uh, I want to say about little less than a month ago on the Grayling Report with Micah Hanks, who's been on our show quite a few times. And uh, I was really grabbed by the topic of his book and what he was saying about the influence of the Book of Enoch on Freemasonry, uh, which is something that I had never really had thought of before in, in those terms. 
So I wanted to bring Robert on, and he was gracious enough to come on the show tonight. And, uh, Robert, we want to welcome you to Conspiranormal. Well, thank you, Adam. Uh, Thank you, Luke. It's great to be here with you guys tonight on Conspiranormal. Um, I want to start off basically with with kind of our basic intro that we do with all the guests. And this is, uh, you know, who you are and how you became involved and interested in the topics that we're going to talk about that that are from your book. Sure, sure. I, I, I became first um, interested, really. I mean, I, I, even, you know, as a child growing up, I was always interested in the unknown. Um, I was, you know, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, I was always watching the old TV show called In Search of with Leonard Nimoy. Um, yeah. when, when it came to this particular subject matter, I really got tipped off to it um, when I was a student at Oxford University in 1992. Um, I was studying European history and philosophy, um, I was studying such things as like the English Civil War, the French Revolution, um, the Thirty Years' War, things like that. But when I was over there, I got I I I, I started reading the works and was you know became interested in the works of an English historian named Francis Yates, who talked extensively about the influence of the Hermetic tradition coming out of the Renaissance into the Enlightenment, being carried on by these modern-day secret societies such as Fre- the Freemasons. The Odd Fellows would be another one, um, and how how this influence was you know, impacting material culture, society in general, you know, even, you know, on an economic, socio-religious, you know, even spiritual level, you know, and even, you know, in some aspects, an entertainment level as well. Um, This just really fascinated me. Um, I wasn't a Mason at the time, but this was uh, my junior year year of college. This would have been 1992-93. I had always wanted to join a Masonic Lodge since since a very young age. Um, I come from a long line of Maryland Freemasons, um, numerous of my great-grandfathers and grandfathers um, were Masons, some of them in, even attaining the rank of um, Worshipful Master. That's a, a title of the person who runs a Masonic Lodge on, on a annual, you know, annually. Uh, okay. Yeah, and at any rate, um, I, I, I was uh, offered an opportunity to join a Masonic Lodge here in Baltimore, Maryland in 1996. Um, you may have heard the term, to be one, ask one. Um, and, and what that's saying is if you want to join a Masonic Lodge, you have to find a Mason and ask, ask permission to join. Um, and I did. Uh, one of my, one of, a friend of my parents was, was a Mason. He wore the Masonic ring, um, you know, with the square and compasses on it. And I, I approached him. I was friendly with him. And I approached him. He said, yeah, we'll get you in. Got the application. Make a long story short, um, became a Master Mason, third-degree Freemason here in Amicable Lodge um, here in Baltimore, Maryland. It's... Um, since merged with a couple other Masonic lodges, it's now called Amicable St. John's um, Lodge Number 25. I became a Scottish Rite Mason in 1999. Um, this was when I was finishing up my third year, my final year at law school. Um, and again, you know, it was during this whole time frame that I really just started, in, you know, you know, my curiosity continued to be piqued. I was researching Freemasonry. I was reading reading the works of people like Hall, mainly Palmer Hall, Albert Pike, Yates, who I mentioned, um, Albert Mackey, people like that. Um, and it was in, you know, in the early mid 2000s, um, you know, I was still, you know, you know, researching this material as much as I could. Um, and it was with the advent of the social media, with social media, with an old page I had called MySpace, where I just started sharing my research, posting photo galleries, things like that. Um, I was approached by another Mason who was a friend of mine, going back to my Oxford days, who had seen this material and was just impressed with it and said, instead of, you know, messing around with social media, why don't you commit yourself to a book? Which was kind of something I had, you know, had always attended anyway, um, and I really started putting pen to paper, and um, 
the Royal Arch of Enoch was released in um, uh, August of uh, 2012. Okay. And I wanted to talk about a little bit about, well, not so much as maybe what Freemasonry is. I think a lot of our listeners probably know what Freemasonry is, but kind of the the difference between the Scottish Rite and the English Rite. And, are, and, and also the Oddfellows. That's interesting to me, yeah. the, the differences between the two. Yeah, what these kind of, these, these, these kind of groups and who they are. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I know that there's a difference in degrees. I think I think like the English right goes up to three, and the Scottish right, of course, is up to thirty-three. Yeah, you, what you have is what what you have originally. The the Odd Fellows are Masonic like they are not associated. I mean, they're they're a charity type of you know philanthropic organization. Um, the Grand Lodge of the Odd Fellows for the entire United States um, was actually founded here in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, they work three, three, three degrees also. I am not an Odd Fellow. Um, but they are um, very similar to Masonic ritual. Um, they have a lot of parallels. They work um, a royal arch ceremony as well, known as the Royal Arch of Titus. Um, the, um, uh, I think it may actually be called the Sacred Arch of Titus. I'd have to look that up. But with Freemasonry, you have the formation of modern-day Freemasonry in England in 1717. Um, this is when you really have the uh, you know, officially on-the-record historical creation of Freemasonry. Um, there is evidence to suggest, of course, that you know there are Masonic lodges, you know, dating back prior to this in the 1600s in England. Of course, you get into these you know mystical, you know, histories of Freemasonry. I mean, some of it's grounded in reality, where you have obviously these operative stonemasons constructing these buildings, you know, these Gothic cathedrals in Europe, you know, who are admitting non, you know, operative masons into the lodge to discuss philosophy, you know, um, you know, myst you know, mysticism away. From the glaring eye of, uh, you know, the king in the Vatican, um, you know, sort of like an open forum um, is the best way to describe it. But Freemasonry as a modern English, you know, organization comes together in 1717. This is what's called Blue Lodge Freemasonry. This is degrees one, two, and three. Um, okay. What are better, better titled as Entered Apprentice, Fellowcraft, and Master Mason. Um, once you complete the third degree ritual, you are a Freemason. Um, the higher degree system comes a couple years later in 1737. Um, and this is where you start getting into these sort of philosophical splits where um, you have this sort of, um, after, after the creation of English Freemasonry in 1717, um, in 1721 you have what's called the Constitutions of Freemasonry written by a Presbyterian minister named James Anderson, and he kind of li lays out the bylaws of Freemasonry, and he traces this mystical history, you know, you know, origin of Freemasonry. He takes it back to the biblical sto stoneworkers who are building things like the Tower of Babel, um, in 1737, this other guy comes along named Andrew Michael Ramsey. He's a Catholic um, Renaissance man living in Paris, and he issues this thing called the Ramsey's Oration, and he breaks off from Anderson. And what he says is, he, he says, I, I don't really disagree with Anderson about this whole thing with operative masons, you know, and, contain, you know, and, and you know, these stonemasons containing, you know, these, these you know, mysteries of stoneworking and things like that. He said, but the true origin of Freemasonry lies in this Roman Catholic sect of warriors called the Knights Templar. He says, in, in a nutshell, he says, Freemasonry is essentially a, a, a Roman Catholic-styled religion um, that, that is an invention of the Templars, and the Templars were in turn influenced into creating this organization by their interaction in the Holy Land through these, you know, you know interacting with these remnants of, of these, you know, Egyptian Mediterranean mystery schools. Such as you know, you know the mysteries of Osiris, Isis, Mithraism, 
Zoroastrianism, the mysteries of Eleusis, um, you know, the mysteries of Pythagoras, things like that. His, his oration birthed what's called the Rite of Perfection, um, which is the high-degree system. Um, it's 25 degrees initially. Um, it gets midwifed into the United States um, uh, by a man named Etienne Morin, um, and it's set up in Albany, New York, um, by a man, a Freemason named Henry Franken. Um, and this, this higher-degree system gets turned into what's called the Scottish Rite, and it also influences um, a man by the name of Thomas Smith Webb, who, along with people like DeWitt Clinton, the former governor of New York, cultivate what's called the York Rite of Freemasonry. Um, they have some similarities. They also have some differences, as you mentioned. Some of the, you know, the York Rite doesn't have as many degrees as the Scottish Rite. Um, the York Rite ends in the Knights Templar ceremonial, which requires a Christian confession to join. Um, that's unique to Freemasonry. I'm not knocking it. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But um, Blue Line sure. Freemasonry is essentially deist. Um, so is the Scottish Rite. Um, York Rite ends with um, not, you know, Knights Templar commanderies and encampments, which requires a Christian confession to join. Both the York and Scottish Rite work a royal arch ceremonial. It is the 13th in the Scottish Rite, um, and that's in the, that comes straight out of the Rite, the rite of Perfection. It's the um, 13th there as well. In the York Rite, it's the 7th degree. Um, in, in the Scottish Rite, it's called the Royal Arch of Enoch or Solomon. Um, in the, uh, excuse me, excuse me, in the, in the Scottish Rite, it's called the York Rite, uh, it's called the Royal Arch of Enoch or Solomon. In the York Rite, it's called the Royal Arch of Zorobabel, um, and that's after the Second Temple. Um, and the, 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 uh, there's some similarities in the, in the two-degree system. Um, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, in order to join the Scottish Rite and the York Rite and or the York Rite, you have to be a third-degree Master Mason. Um, you can join both rites. You can join neither rite. You can join one, not the other. Um, I joined the Scottish Rite because that's where all my family went into. Um, I certainly have no problem with the York Rite. Many of my Masonic friends are members of the York Rite. Um, and both work this higher-degree Royal Arch um, ceremonial. So it's the 13th degree in Scottish Rite Freemasonry. It's the 7th degree in some other – I forgot which – the what, I think it was the York Rite that you say in the book. Right, right. Uh, the, Royal Arch, the Royal Arch ceremonial, which is very important within Freemasonry, in the York Rite system, it's, it's the 7th degree known as the Royal Arch of Zero Babel. In the Scottish Rite, it's the 13th degree, known as the Royal Arch of Enoch. Okay. So that is the focus of your book. And, of course, your book is titled The Royal Arch of Enoch. And my question is, is how does that degree connect to the Book of Enoch right. and what's in the Book of Enoch? Right. It, it, it it has the, the degree is, is clearly the people who are putting this degree together back in the 1740s in Paris are in Paris are clearly being influenced um, by by this book of Enoch, um, this lost book of Enoch. Um, the ritual is very important within Freemasonry because um, and I'm just going to I got to give some back information to get into the whole book of Enoch influence. Um, in a nutshell, and I'm going over a lot of material here at once. But in Blue Lodge Freemasonry, in the third degree, um, the, 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 the ritual revolves around the construction of Solomon's Temple, and the architect building it is a guy named Hiram Abiff who possesses what's called the Tetragrammaton, or the secret name of God. Um, and it's from this word that all learning is made possible. And in a nutshell, okay. 
um, he's killed in the degree. He's ultimately resurrected. But when he's killed, the word is lost. Um, it's lost in the Blue Lodge. It's what's called the lost word of a Master Mason. Um, and it's gone forever. Um, they use in, in Blue Lodge Freemasonry, when, when, when Hiram Abiff is resurrected, and as a token, you have what's called, what's, what's whispered and communicated, it's what's called a substitute word of a Master Mason. It's not the true name. The name is gone. Um, you fast forward into the higher degree situ you know, ceremonial, the Royal Arch degree documents the recovery of this lost name, of the secret word of God, um, you know, the secret word, the secret lost name of God. Um, and this comes out of the Book of Enoch, um, where Enoch is transported into heaven. Um, and i got to say that this is very important within Freemasonry because basically the entire purpose of the philosophical purpose of Blue Lodge Freemasonry is you're supposed to be running around looking for this lost word. But the word has already been found in these higher degree rituals um, where this secret name of God, this tetragrammaton um, that restores these two pillars um, called the Pillars of Enoch, on which is inscribed all pre-flood you know, pre of Noah wisdom, is restored. Um, and in this in the Book of Enoch's influences, the candidate beholds the Tetragrammaton um, as a emanation of Hebrew Kabbalah, um, the name of God restoring this lost wisdom, wisdom, which was communicated to Enoch in the Book of Enoch. Um, things like the, this is what would be called the medieval trivium or quadrivium, um, the seven liberal arts and sciences and mathematics. Um, this is all communicated to Enoch during his celestial journey. He returns to Earth with it and in order to thwart the flood of Noah, buries it in this underground vault. Um, you have concepts um, relating to divine kingship, um, where the candidate becomes the citizen king priest. Um, in the earlier workings of this ritual in the United States, the Royal Arch Ceremonial, this predates the formation of the Scottish and York Rite. Um, this was the end-all, be-all rite of Freemasonry, and this has to be understood um, that basically prior to the formation of the York and Scottish Rites, the Royal Arch Ceremonial was as far as you could go. And what it was was when you were initiated into this ritual, you became a citizen priest king themselves, yourself, by beholding this tetragrammaton. And again, this concept of divine you know, apotheosis um, comes straight out of the Book of Enoch, where Enoch becomes divine-like um, because of his interactions with, Supreme, with the deity in the afterlife, not only through his interaction with the archangels, um, but with this other group of fallen angels called the Watchers. And when, okay. when, when Enoch is in heaven, one of the things he beholds is, you know, the sacred tree of life, which is, of course, the, you know, Kabbalistic Sephirotic tree, um, and which is the emanation of the name of God. And, of course, this is incorporated um, into Freemasonry um, with this sacred name. And, again, you have this restoration of this antediluvian wisdom, um, you know, and, again, that's, you know, coming out of the book of Enoch. Um, you know, and there's other elements, of course, but in a nutshell, um, that's part of it. And in the works of the the Golden Dawn, um, I, I forget the author. You you know him too, uh, Israel, Israeli uh, Israel Regardi. Israel, Israel yeah. yeah, Israel Regardi. Yeah. Um, they're talking about the, the true name of God, and they say that uh, if it's spoken, then it can cause things to happen like natural disasters, uh, you know, earthquakes and things like that. Uh, is, does that align with the beliefs of uh, Freemasonry? Well, what I would say is that the name, I, um, the name in the in the ceremonial is purely the, the name in the ritual is purely for ceremonial purposes. I mean, what I'm trying to say is no one believes that this is the real name of God. 
Um, it, it's a construct, okay. it's a constructed name. Um, oh. it, it's you know it's, it's again it's just used for ceremonial purposes. When you get into concepts of the name of God, what it really is, um, there's several ways of looking at it. Um, there are several names of God out there. Um, the, I guess the most common one would be Jehovah, which would be the Hebrew version would be Yad Hey Vah um, you know, when you put it into its Christian form, would be Jehovah. Um, it, it's, there's, there's another one, there's another Jewish secret name of God um, called Shem Ham Forash. Um, this is the word that was allegedly used by Moses to part the Red Sea. Um, if there were, whatever the real name of God is, assuming there is one, um, it, it's lost to history. Um, the, Masonic, the Masonic ritual, the Royal Arch ritual where this is recovered, um, the word is purely ceremonial. Um, and, and no, no, no Mason really believes that it's the genuine name of God. Um, again, it's just used for ceremonial purposes. Um, but I know that when you get into, um, you know, these groups like the Golden Dawn, um, you know, McGregor Mathers, you know, and Aleister Crowley, and, you know, Bram Stoker was involved with this. I, I have the Regardi, Regardi books here, so I'm very familiar with what you're talking about. Yeah, you definitely get into the Kabbalistic, you know, interpretations of the name of God. And of course, the name of God would be one of your, you know, you know, when you, if you're working a casting or working a spell, that's one of your most, um, you know, sacred invocations would be the name of God. Um, and you know, the the a lot of the members of the Golden Dawn, um, you know, you know, their workings, you know, Crowley included, you know, all, you know, Alaphis Levy was another one where they're getting this from. Um, you know, the workings, the ceremonial magic, um, is all centered around the secret name of God. Um, you know, the Tetragrammaton. Okay. One thing about the Book of Enoch, uh, this uh, it's interesting chronology because you have, and you point this out in the book, you have all these um, these rites being formulated in basically the 18th century, and although the Book of Enoch is found later in the 18th century, or rather, it's it's taken from Ethiopia by I believe the guy the discoverer was named James Bruce. I think was a Freemason. That's right. Uh, he te- it's not translated until about 1830 or so. So it's interesting that this information uh, somehow came without the without them actually having the actual book. So was this was this information that was passed down? Well, well, this is the million dollar question. Um, and and what I say in the book is you're, you're right. Um, you know the the, the ceremonial workings. Um, the ritual as it's being developed in the seven, early 1740s, um, it's coming out of Ramsey's oration. And Ramsey actually mentions Enoch by name in his oration. Um, you know, it's coming out of that. Um, if, if you go back in time to the, when his ritual, to the, you know, the late 1730s to 1740s, the limitation of non-Masonic knowledge to Enoch, um, you know, was limited to Genesis 5, 18 to 24 and Jude 14 to 15. You know, there is right. no other knowledge of Enoch out there. Now, there are some rumors about, you know, some Jewish rumors about him and um, some myths about the pillars of Enoch, but clearly the constructors of this ritual, you know, were clearly being influenced by the Book of Enoch. Um, this is mentioned originally by a Freemason named, um, this is how I wanted the tip off that I got onto it was, um, there's a book out by a Freemason named B.E. Jones. It's called the Freemason's Book of the Royal Arch. And in his rich, in, in this book, in the intro, he says that this ceremonial is just a parody, you know, or paralleling the Book of Enoch from start to finish. 
Jones doesn't go any further than that. The rest of the book is how the ritual varies from, you know, continent to continent. He gets into some of the Germanic workings, the French workings, the Irish workings, the American workings. And I kind of thought, well, wait a minute. You know, how, how is this ritual when it's being developed in the 1740s echoing and paralleling this Book of Enoch, which is lost to history? You know, as you mentioned, it's not even translated to English until 18, it's 1821, I want to say. Um, and what, okay. I, what, what I propose in the book is that, these, is that there's another copy out there is that there must be another copy. Well, there was already a copy floating around Europe. Um, and there's evidence that points, and again, it's not proof, but there's strong evidence to suggest that, um, you know, you asked, you, you suggested, is this knowledge that's being handed down? It's very possible. Um, you get into groups, these, you know, these Christian mystery groups, such as the Gnostics, um, then you've got the Cathars, then you've got the Templars, then you've got the Rosicrucians, you know, then you've got the Jesuits, then you've got the Freemasons and the Illuminati. Are they passing down the secret knowledge, um, you know, orally, or is there another copy? My, my take is it probably would be another copy, or at least a highly detailed summary of the Book of Enoch. Um, and I've been asked this before, um, and you know, people said, "Oh, well, where could it have come from?" Um, and one of the likely candidates for this is this English astrologer, polymath, occultist named Dr. John Dee. Um, he, he seems a prime candidate, and there's some very striking evidence to suggest um, that he, he may be a source candidate for a lost copy of the Book of Enoch. Okay. I kind of want to get to D a little bit later. Sure. But I think, Luke, did you have a question? Uh, uh, from what I understand, the uh, the Book of Enoch was discovered in the caves of uh, Quamaran in the Judean desert. My understanding is the copies that were translated at Oxford come out of Ethiopia um, in 1773. Right. Uh, they're discovered, you're correct, by a man named James Bruce who returns with them um, in, in 1773-1774. They are deposited in the um, uh, Bodleian Library at Oxford University where they remain untranslated until 1821. Um, from, from the second century, second, third century common era or A.D. up until around 1821, the Book of Enoch, the Ethiopian Enoch um, copy, copy basically is lost to history. Um, you know, and again, the thrust of the book or, you know, the overwhelming thread that I present in the book is that the, um, the sonic ritualists and philosophers who were constructing this rite um, in Paris in the 1740s clearly must have been influenced by a lost copy out there. Um, I believe there is some also, I, I'd have to look this up, um, there's some mention of the, you know, you get into the Essenes and the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think some of that also reflects the Book of Enoch that comes years later. Um, but um, you know, I'd, ha I'd have to uh, pull that. I'd have to go look that up to be certain. Uh, that that was something that I was uh, getting at, is that uh, I was reading about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and apparently everything was made public except for just one scroll that uh, it, it said that the archaeologists that found this scroll kept it private and among their own um, uh, scholarly groups you know, not to be released to the public, but everything else was, was uh, you know, publicized right, right. from the caves of Cormoran. Right, right. Well, I mean, it, it could contain secret information. I suggest in the book, um, I've been asked in other interviews before, and I'll bring it up with you because um, it ties into your question, is, you know, why would this information be suppressed? And could the book of, you know, why was the, you know, why didn't the book of Enoch turn up in the Bible? You know, and was there a conscious effort to suppress it for all this time? The answer that I suggest is, is this, is that I can't say that there was, you know, a conscious su suppression of it, but 
clearly, if, if you read the book of Enoch um, and, you, and, and my interpretation um, on the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, is sort of you know, what you would call astrotheological. Um, and, and if you get into this, and it's, it's, it's one, probably the most, one of the more, well, at least one of the more controversial components of, my, of the Royal Arch of Enoch book is, um, if, if you accept the fact, or at least open to the fact that the book is an astrotheological um, text, you know, then you ask, well, where, where, you know, the people who are constructing it, where are they being influenced from? I mean, clearly it would be the Book of Enoch. I mean, you have, uh, you know, you know, concepts coming out of the Book of Enoch that turn up in the Bible all over the place. Um, I mean, and especially in the New Testament, um, where where Jesus is the Son of Man, that comes straight out of the Book of Enoch. You get these concepts of the sun, you know, in solar adoration and even lunar and you know, astrological adoration. Um, you know, if, you know that could be an influence on the constructors of the um, of the New Testament. Um, what one of the people who seems to be in, have influenced by the Book of Enoch was um, was uh, a, a man by the name of Origen. Um, he he's one of the chief compile, compilers of of, of uh, the documents that become the New Testament. If you read his work, he he says that that this work contains a secret hidden meaning, you know, not not to be disclosed. You know, so, so then the question begs, well, you know, is, is it the Book of Enoch that, you know, is providing this sort of secret astrological, you know, influence on the Bible? It's very possible, and, it's, and in my opinion, it's likely. Yeah, the Book of Enoch was, um, it's in the Ethiopian Bible today, mm -hmm. even, right. I believe. So, um, I believe that it was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but this was, of course, after uh, right, yeah, he's, is around he's saying it was already in the Ethiopian canine. Yeah, it was already in there. Right. Um, just, just as an aside, uh, this is something that, you know, like I said, we've talked about the Book of Enoch a lot. As an aside, why do you think the Book of Enoch was left out of the canon? Oh, well, it's the reasons I just said is, um, well, for starters, you have with the Book of Enoch, I mean, clearly you have very controversial um, subject matters going on. Uh, yeah. I mean, you have interaction with basically demons, and the, not only the interaction of demons, but you have the returning to Earth. You know, you know the, the, the concept that the knowledge, here's what you have. I mean, you have the concept that the knowledge that Enoch is gleaning and learning from, this, from his interaction with these fallen angels or the Watchers is divine, um, is godlike. You know, now I know that, um, you know, that they are fallen angels, but in the Book of Enoch, that notwithstanding, the information he's learning is still considered holy. This is completely contrasted in the Old Testament, where it is deemed evil. Um, and the reason we know that is, you know, you know, someone said, oh, well, it never says that in the uh, Old Testament, that the knowledge is evil. Yeah, well, I mean, this is what God was trying to eradicate, you know, with the flood of Noah was the Enochian, you know, was, was this wisdom. He was trying to start over. This, and this is one of the yeah. cruxes of anti-Masonry, is that the Masons are the preservers of this wisdom stemming from demons, technically, that God was trying to eradicate. I mean, this was a huge component of anti-Masonry of the 1820s. Um, so you have this, con you know, contrasting, you know, you, know, you know, idea that the knowledge is divine in the Book of Enoch, yet it's, you know, evil in, in, in the Old Testament, and this is part of what God's trying to eradicate with the flood of Noah. But then on another, you know, even more controversial level, you clearly, in my opinion, have um, an astrological, I mean, the Book of Enoch contains an astro astronomical, astrological book. I mean, if, 
you know, you want to say that, you know, that that's influencing the New Testament, which I think it is. I mean, like I said, you have numerous, you know, you have the whole thing with the Son of Man. Um, that, that comes straight out of the Book of Enoch. The, I know in the uh, Apostles, um, in the, you know, you know, some of the Apostles quote the Book of Enoch. I know Jesus in the New Testament, there's some of his lines to quote the Book of Enoch. You clearly, yes, yeah. Yeah, you clearly have solar references going on. Um, so, you know, my take on it would be that the Book of Enoch is, is sort of, you know, providing the raw material, the astrological raw material that, you know, you know, that is incorporated in the New Testament. Um, and that's, that would be a real strong, you know, argument as to why it would have been left out of the, uh, you know, Old and New Testament. Okay. All right. I have a question for you that I'm hoping you could answer. Um, I'm looking for it on my phone right now, the specific part of Numbers that talks about, um, well, you know, you know, the whole chapter of Numbers is telling the dates of how long all of these important biblical figures lived. Right. Uh, well, Enoch shows up in there, and, and the dates don't match up. You know, his his uh, birth and death date apparently don't match up with uh, the dates mentioned in the book of Enoch itself. Well, he doesn't die. He does. He never dies. Right. You, what would what, what, what you would have with regarding the the, the dates? Um, Enoch Enoch only appears um, in one place in the Bible. Um, that's in Genesis at. Um, uh, at at five eighteen to twenty four, that's that's it um, in the Bible for for Enoch. Um, okay. The 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 there is a numera there's a very occult numero, numerological reference to Enoch where it says that his days on earth was numbered at three hundred and sixty five. Um, and again, here we go again. That's an obvious solar reference um, to the you know solar year. Um, so so you know you know again you know. If, if you're going to propose the argument, which I do, that the Bible, you know, is this astrological, astrotheological solar manual, um, you know, that's just another solar reference to uh, to chalk up to chalk up basically. So I want to ask um, Robert about the Royal Arts degree and how it's influenced, like the basically the founding. Uh, the United States, the architecture, some of the symbolism sure. that we have, sure. uh, especially in D.C. Sure. And especially, I think, there where you are, I've seen some videos of you on YouTube where you go to the to the Baltimore Lodge there. Right, right, right. Well, what, what I talk about in the book is that the reason that this ceremonial is so important is because it's the recovery of the tetragrammaton. Um, it's this lost word of a master mason that is sort of the philosophical, you know, mission of the Blue Lodge, um, okay. and, and just to recap real quick, um, you know, you know the tetragrammaton, is, is, it's discovered in this secret underground vault by the sun. Um, they can't see into the vault, and the sun rays penetrate um, the vault, illuminating the sacred name of God. So, I mean, again, right here we have this reference to the tetragrammaton and the sun, um, and again, this is another nexus to the Book of Enoch. But you get into Blue Lodge Freemasonry in this Royal Arch degree, I mean, you will just see solar references um, all over the place, um, and D.C. and Baltimore is is um, is two great examples. Um, the video, just real quick, I'll get into D.C. in one second. Um, the videos you're talking about um, that you saw on my YouTube channel, they were filmed at the Scottish Rite Temple here in downtown Baltimore. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's that's where that was filmed. That was the Scottish Rite Temple. Um, but just going to like D.C. for example, for like a solar, you know, Masonic, you know, Royal Arch symbol. 
um, you know, and this incorporates everything you're looking for, would be what's called your federal triangle, um, which is formed by the White House, um, the Washington Monument, and the um, uh, United States Capitol. Um, you're going to have to bear with me if you want me to explain this. It's going to take a minute or two. But um, what you have going on is that, is that forms what's called a Pythagorean right triangle. Um, and it's also, a Pythagorean right triangle is also known as the, the 47th proposition of Euclid. Um, and this is, again, formed by the White House, the Washington Monument Obelisk, up to the Capitol, and then back down to the uh, White House. Um, the Pythagorean theorem is what's commonly known as A squared plus B squared equals C squared, um, with C squared being what's called the hypotenuse. Um, in the mysteries um, coming out of Egypt and into what's called Rosicrucianism, it is a solar reference. Um, the one side represents the resurrected sun god Osiris. The other side represents his virgin consort named Isis. And the hypotenuse, um, or C-squared, would be the perfected divine solar child known as Horus. Um, a f the 47th proposition of Euclid or the Pythagorean theorem is an emblem of Masonic rulership and leadership. It is the token of a Masonic worshipful master who sits in the east representing the rising sun. Um, in D.C., this is formed, again, by the White House Mon Washington Monument and up to the Capitol. Those three edifices were all created and designed by Freemasons. The White House was designed by a Mason named James Hoband, which is modeled after a Masonic temple or lodge in Dublin, Ireland, known as Leinster Palace. The Washington Monument was done by a Freemason named Robert Mills, and, of course, an obelisk is sacred to the sun god Amun Re Ra. And then the United States Capitol was done by Benjamin Henry Latrobe. And to make a long story short, uh, domed buildings are chambers of the sun god Apollo. That comes out of the work of a Roman architect named Vitruvius, um, reworked by two Renaissance masters. But anyway, a royal tie, a royal arch of Enoch tie into this Pythagorean triangle is, of course, um, the hypotenuse, which would be Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, and Pennsylvania Avenue connects or links the two elected branches of our government, um, the White House, which is the chief executive, and the Capitol building, which seats the United States Congress and the Senate. Um, and Pennsylvania is, of course, known as the Keystone State. Um, and, the, you, know, you know, a keystone is what creates an archway. Without a keystone, an archway cannot stand. And um, there is a very deep esoteric meaning um, and my book is the only one that talks about it, is why um, Pennsylvania is known as the Keystone State. Um, the answer lies in Royal Arch Occult Freemasonry, um, where you have Pennsylvania unifying the other states into one United States of America, just as a Keystone unites all the other stones into one Royal Archway. Um, it's, it would be too long and involved to get into, but um, that's it in a nutshell. But you'll see other solar emblems in the federal district You'll see this also copied in Baltimore, Maryland, um, but that's one of the, um, you know, just off the top of my head, that's one of the main um, solar Masonic Royal Arch emblems, you know, architecturally in the Federal District. Hmm. I have been to the Scottish Rite uh, uh, Freemason headquarters in D.C., mm -hmm. and that was an extremely interesting place. Yeah, the, um, the temple in Washington, D.C., um, is a replication of one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. Um, it, the, the, the temple in D.C. is a replication of the mausoleum of Halicarnassus, um, which was one of the seven ancient man-made wonders. Um, you will find two other 
um, man-made ancient wonders replicated in the United States, um, and both are Freemasonic. Um, well, there's three that I can think of. One I just mentioned was the Scottish Rite. Then you have the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor, which is a duplication of the Colossus of Rhodes. Um, and then the other one would be the George Washington um, Masonic Memorial in Alexandria, Virginia, um, and that's a duplication or an architectural replication of the same lighthouse of Alexandria, Egypt. This is why it's a lighthouse and sits in Alexandria, you know, Virginia, the Alexandria huh. connection. Um, and there's uh, you know, that's uh, three three Masonic replications of the seven man-made wonders um, that you'll find in the uh, United States. It's funny because we um, we were we were there, you know, we went on a sightseeing you know tour of DC, and my plan I really wanted to go see this place. And the day before, I was at the Capitol. And, uh, of course, you know, the Capitol, they have at the top of the Capitol, you have the apotheosis of George Washington. But our tour guide said something that I thought was pretty interesting, was that when the um, president, the incoming president that's being inaugurated, when he goes down the stairs, he goes down 33 steps. Right. Is that kind of symbolism just replete? All it seems like that kind of symbolism was just replete everywhere there. Well, I say I say in the book that basically the president, you know, this this you know is is basically a royal arch son priest, you know, who's moderating this Masonic Republic, which I call in the book uh, the world's first you know Masonic nation, for lack of a better word. But yeah, you 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 know you get into, um, you know, you'll see Masonic, um, you know, you know you get into what you just mentioned, you know, of course. You know, you get into the concept of the Great Seal, both the reverse and obverse. You know, you'll see Masonic, you know, symbolism all over the place. You know, the eagle, the eagle side, which is the obverse, you know, is replete with the number 13. I mean, it's all over the damn place. Uh, yeah. You know, you know, I mean, and I say in the book, I say, you know, when it comes to symbology of this sort, you know, the person always has to bear in mind that there is always an exoteric explanation and an esoteric explanation. There's always multiple levels. You know, and exoterically it would be the 13 colonies, but esoterically it would be this 13th Royal Arch degree, the recovery of this lost word of a master mason, you know, which is so important within you know, the Masonic Rite. Um, and, of course, this seems to be confirmed, and again, you know, with the, with the number of feathers on the eagle, the one side has 32 and the other has 33. So, I mean, you know, here again we have this uh, Scottish Rite tie-in, Rite of Perfection tie-in. You know, and I, I mean, what is it? The um, I mentioned this in the book, the... The, the temple in D.C. sits 13 blocks from the White House. You know, I mean, that's not a coincidence. So, yeah, you will see numerological. Um, I mean, another one of this is the, um, you mentioned earlier in the show, um, and I've got a, I got a bit on it in the book, is we talked about how the York Rite of Freemasonry coming out of, you know, New York, basically, um, was the seventh degree. Um, you know, I, I, I'd have to go pull the book, but the Statue of Liberty is a temple to the number seven. Um, you know, which I say is reflecting the seventh degree of the York Rite. Again, it's the same thing, this royal arch symbology. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you know, you, you get into it, you know, you will definitely see this stuff all over the place. And you see it once or twice, you may think to yourself, oh, it's just coincidence. You see it as much as, you know, I document in the book. There's no way, you know, you're well beyond coincidence at that point. So you would believe that the foundation of the United States, the breakaway from Britain, that that was a, a conscious attempt by Freemasons to create a Masonic Republic, much like what Francis Bacon had written about. Yeah, I, I think it was definitely. I can't say to you that when they rebelled, that the end game was was their plan to set up a Masonic Republic, because 
I mean, you know, no one could see the future. I mean, they could have lost after all. But what one thing is clear, I mean, and I talk about this in the book, is once Great Britain was, you know, defeated, or basically they were just kicked out. Um, I mean, I know yeah. it's an, a, re- a revolution, but I mean, all we did was just remove the British. I mean, and, you know, but but at any rate, um, once the British were defeated, um, I mean, yeah, you will clearly see, I mean, without question, um, you know, a Masonic influence on the development of this country. I mean, just from its inception, you know, where you get into the separation of church and state. Um, I mean, that comes straight out of Anderson's Constitution, where he basically says that in order to join a Masonic temple or Masonic lodge, there's no religious requirement. And Freemasonry and a Freemasonic Blue Lodge cannot require one to be a member of a certain religion. I mean, it's deism. You can be a Christian. You can be Jewish or Hebrew or Muslim or Buddhist. As long as you believe in a supreme being, that's fine. But there's no religious requirement that comes straight out of, I mean, separation of church and state comes straight out of Anderson's Constitution. Then on another level, you have, um, and I talk about this in the book, you have the triple division of government um, between an executive, legislative legislative branch and a judicial, judicial branch. Um, the triple division of government is, is Blue Lodge Freemasonry, um, where the governance of a Blue Lodge is, is divided um, tripartite between a worshipful master and his two wardens, um, his uh, junior warden and a senior warden. Um, if, if you're not aware, the worshipful, I don't know if you've ever been in a Masonic lodge, but the worshipful master, this is the guy who runs the lodge, sits in the east as the rising sun. The um, junior warden sits in the south as the sun at midday or high meridian. And the, the um, senior warden sits in the south representing the setting sun. So the governance of the Masonic Lodge is based on the movement of the sun. Um, and again, you know, the triple division of the government of the United States is basically a Masonic solar, you know, reference, or, you know, you know for lack of a better word. Um, you know, the, the triple division of the government is clearly free Masonic. Um, and then again, you know, what we were just talking about, we, you know, you get into the architecture, the sacred architecture. You know, I mean, if, if you're going to go so far as to say that the Constitution's a Masonic document, which I believe it is, then, I mean, clearly you're going to see Masonic influence in the architecture, you know, of, its, of the capital city, which is Washington, D.C. I mean, Washington isn't the only city that has this. You will literally see um, this architecture, you know, duplicated in Baltimore, Maryland. You will see Masonic, um, you know, architecture in New York. Um, you know, you will see Masonic emblems on, you know, state seals. Um, and colleges, um, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I have a chapter in the book um, titled The United States of Freemasonry, um, you know, and you, what you mentioned, you know, Francis Bacon, you know, kind of, you know, is, you know, is he the guiding force, you know, the new Atlantis setting up this new world? Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, there's, there definitely is some clear evidence of that, no doubt about it. Um, is, is the book of Enoch in, well, first of all, is uh, the Bible that uh, judges and courts swear on, you know, that they hold their, hold one hand on the Bible, one hand to, you know, raise the right hand, is that a Masonic Bible? Um, no, no, there are Masonic Bibles, but you usually see them in Masonic lodges. Um, a lot of times it's, it's, um, it's, it's just the King James Bible. Um, it's nothing special or different about it, except on the front cover you'll have, you'll have the um, Masonic square and compasses, there is within the ritual, in the Blue Lodge ritual, um, the Bible has, I think, God, I'd have to look this up. I think that the Bible is supposed to be open to certain portions um, when you do the ritual. I want to say at one point it's supposed to be open to the Book of Kings. 
Um, I, I can't remember. I have to go look that up. But, but my understanding is that uh, the Bibles in the court are not Freemasonic per se. Okay. What's the um, you talk about too, Robert, about the connection with the Jesuits, mm. and they have some connection to the founding of Freemasonry or the formation of it. Um, what's the connection there to the Jesuits? Yeah, what you have going on. It's a very it's a great question. Um, um, what you have going on is you. Um, I'm going to have to just backpedal a little bit to get into this. Um, sure. The Jesuits, the Society of Jesus. Um, I have to make this clear because I, I was talking about this on another podcast the other night, and, I, and the, the, I, the um, it, it came off not what I intended, but I had to correct myself. The Jesuits have nothing to do with the formation of Blue Lodge Freemasonry in England in 1717. They have nothing to do with that. The Jesuits come into play years later with the creation of these higher degrees um, called the Rite of Perfection. And this was what we were mentioning at the beginning of the show. These, this, these 25 degrees are ultimately what get turned into the Scottish Rite and the York Rite of Freemasonry. The Jesuit in- interest in Freemasonry is what's part of the, what's called the Counter-Reformation. Um, and this dates back to what the, the Council of Trent, where you had the Reformation of Martin Luther, and then the, the Counter-Reformation was orchestrated by the Vatican, was led by the Jesuits, um, and it was to use subterfuge, well, this was part of it, was to use subterfuge to secretly lure Protestants and, and weaken the Protestant church by hook or by crook. So what you have going on in you know, England in 1717 is the formation of Blue Lodge Freemasonry, um, you know, you know, and England has been target number one of the Jesuits since um, the Henrican settlement, I want to say, of 1538, where Henry VIII basically banished the Catholic Church in England, tossed the Vatican out, set up the Church of England, put the English monarch in charge of it, who is the de facto pope of the um, Church of England. Ever since then, the Jesuits have been hell-bent on retribution and revenge against England. For example... The Spanish Armada of Queen Elizabeth was a Jesuit plan. Guy Fox, the Catholic um, sympathizer, Roman Catholic um, agent who tried to blow up uh, the Protestant James I in the gunpowder plot of 1605, that was a Jesuit plot. Um, the Jesuits have been you know, out to get England um, since the days of Henry VIII. So what you have going on is you have Freemasonry developed in 1717 in England. Well, what better way than to infiltrate infiltrate Freemasonry with these higher degrees as part of the Reformation? Um, and what what they're doing is these higher degrees are developed um, at what's called the College of Claremont in Paris, France. It's a counter-Reformation trick, um, which the Jesuits are the masters of, to try to get Protestants not only to abandon the Protestant Church but to lure lure them into this sort of Roman Catholic um, form of Freemasonry, which Ramsey's oration kind of says Freemasonry is. I mean, it's just a perfect setup. Um, The degrees become very popular, and you have to understand, again, what's going on in England at this time. Um, You know, you have, um, within the Stuart family, um, you have James II, who was kicked out in 1688 for being too Roman Catholic. You have, in 1701, you have the, um, you know, the Act of Settlement, which basically says a Catholic can't sit on the English throne. Um, and what, you know, then you have Queen Anne, who's the last Stuart, um, but she's on the Protestant side. Um, and, you know, she's, you know, then you've got the Hanoverians coming in. They're also Protestant. What the, these higher degrees of Freemasonry developed by the Society of Jesus were really trying to do was trying to 
they were being used as a vehicle to restore Bonnie Prince Charlie back to the throne of England and return the Stuart Catholic side back to the throne. Um, that was the Jesuit modus operandi um, of creating these higher degrees. Now, I have to predicate this one. By the time the degrees reached the shores of America, the Jesuits kind of seemed to be out of the picture. And I use the word seem to be because we don't know for certain. Um, and I would also would say that there is also a Jesuit sort of nexus influence, um, you know, within Blue Lodge Freemasonry, even within this country, where, um, you, know, you know, I talk about this in the book, we get into the Jesuits, you know, in the higher degrees, you know, becoming this, you know, York right high, you know, Scottish right higher degree system. But even in America, where you have Daniel Carroll, um, who, who, you know, is a signer of the Constitution for Maryland, it's his land, that, you know, the Carroll family's land that becomes Washington, D.C. He's a Freemason, or, you know, he's a Freemason. His brother is um, the first archbishop in the United States. He's a Jesuit priest named John Carroll. Um, and, of course, John Carroll you know, founds Georgetown University, which is the Jesuit college, you know, that sits in the confines of the Masonic Federal District. So even on yeah. another level, you'll see this Jesuit Masonic nexus going on. Fascinating subject matter. There, there's people out there um, that uh, I'm aware of that connect everything, like anything with Freemasonry to the to the Jesuits. So yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of conspiracy theories dealing with Jesuits. That's why I wanted to kind of ask you about that. Yeah, well, I mean, you clearly will have a Jesuit influence with the higher degrees. I mean, and I'm not the first Masonic writer to talk about this. Albert Mackey talks about this in his Encyclopedia of Freemasonry. I mean, he's revered. Robert McCoy, he's another Masonic author who has an encyclopedia uh, um, or a dictionary out. He talks about the Jesuit influence. I mean, if you think about what the Jesuits and the Freemasons are, I mean, they're very similar. I mean, you have two ma all-male groups that are these sort of quasi-religious orders, you know, to moderate society, and both of them are based on the sun. I mean, look at the seal, yeah. you know, look at the seal for the Society of Jesus. It's the sun. You know, I mean, what's the most important symbol within Freemasonry? The sun. I mean, so, yeah, you will clearly see a lot of parallels um, between the Freemasons and the Jesuits. And, of course, you know, when you get into the higher degree system, you know, you, you definitely will see, you know, a Jesuit influence, um, no doubt about that. I want to talk about, we, kind of, we mentioned it before, and I wanted to talk about John D. Absolutely. And when I think of the Book of Enoch, one of the things I think about, you know, from my studies is the whole John D. His concepts of Enochian angels. Absolutely. And it and it and it definitely piqued my interest when we were talking about where did the Masons get this that that you said some of it could have come from John D. So this is the idea of the Enochian angels and whether they're the same as the Watcher angels that are in there. What's kind of the connection? To John D. and this, 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 all of this about the Book of Enoch and the Royal Arch of Enoch, and of course John D. was a, uh, you know, he was basically like a spy. I think we get like 007 was John D. Yeah, right. Originally, right, right. yeah. No, absolutely. It, no, this is a great. It's a great subject matter. Um, what, what, you know, you get into this idea of okay, let's just, you know, let's just say. You know, which I say in the book that these Masons who were constructing this ritual had a copy of the Book of Enoch, and this would, of course, been you know, I mean, this is the whole thrust of the book. This would, of course, been prior to Bruce coming back in 1773, and it's obviously well before the right. 1821. So then the question, you know, needs to be asked: Okay, well, where where did this book maybe have come from? Well, one of your most likely candidates is Dr. John Dee, and the reason is threefold. 
One is exactly what you were just talking about, is that he develops this source, you know, this conjuring magic or sorcery to talk with ones, you know, to talk with these angelic and demonic entities known as Enochians. You know, I mean, well, you know, that can't be coincidence that, you know, I mean, here we have Enoch in the Book of Enoch interacting with angels and falling an fallen angels, and Dee develops this system of magic and names it after the guy. You know, I mean, I mean that, 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 that just cannot be a coincidence. Um, that, you know, this, this form of Enochian magic, you know, to communicate with angels and demons is being named after Enoch. And what does Enoch do in the Book of Enoch? Well, he talks to angels and demons. Not a coincidence. Two um, is, you know, when it comes to Dee, um, his library it was extensive. I mean, at the time, I want to say he had the greatest library of, in all of Europe at one point in time. Um, and I know a lot of his works went to, um, uh, it's, it's rumored, went to Bacon. Um, you know, and of course, you get into the concept, I'm just going to throw this out, but, you know, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with this, you know, that Bacon is William Shakespeare, you know, the Shakespeare. Yeah, I've heard that, right? yeah. Yeah, the Shakespeare yeah. of the Spears. And um, then, of course, you also get into uh, some of these library went to a guy named Elias Ashmole, um, and he is an early Freemason. He was an Oxford lawyer, and he also associates with the Rosicrucians. Um, so Dee's library was extensive. So to say he, he didn't have a copy, I mean, you know, well, I mean, he very well could have. I mean, he could have had a lost copy. But three, and this is by far and away the most compelling one, and the most interesting one is, um, and this is what you were just mentioning with Dee being the spy, was um, Elizabeth was, and this meant, ties in perfectly to what we were just talking about, was, you know, was, you know target number one of the Jesuits. I mean, she was, you know, you know number one on their hit list. Um, Sir Francis Walsingham developed this spy ring around her, or this ring around her to protect her. Um, he was her chief spy master. People involved with this was, you know, were like Giordano Bruno, the Dominican friar, um, Drake, um, Raleigh, who I'll get to in a minute, Dean Kelly, um, you know, Bacon even, you know, were all involved with Walsingham's spy ring. Sir Walter Raleigh, in his History of the World, actually mentions that um, Origen and Tertullian had a copy of the astronomy book from the Book of Enoch. And people seem to ask, well, if you read the works of Origen and Tertullian, they don't seem to mention, you know, there's really no mention of this directly. But you're asking the wrong question. The, question, the right question to ask is, how the hell did Sir Walter Raleigh know that the Book of Enoch contained an astrological portion? And the answer, yeah. Bobby, the answer is only one answer. It's he's getting it from D, his fellow spy master. I mean, it's the only thing that makes sense. And with, with D, you're, you're absolutely correct. I talk about this in the Royal Arch book, and this is a subject matter of my second book as well, is D, when he was writing these spy correspondence, these espionage correspondence, he was signing the document 007. Um, and the seven is, it, it, it's the, the actual symbol is eyeglasses. And what it was symbolizing was the correspondence was for her eyes only, for Elizabeth's eyes only. You know, and this is, of course, where the term for your eyes only comes from. Um, and, of course, 007 is, of course, the sigil for James Bond. And we know that Fleming, who was the um, uh, creator of the, the James Bond character, Ian Fleming was the guy who wrote the novels, um, Fleming was influenced by Aleister Crowley. Um, Fleming, Fleming was um, Kremen, Crowley's um, handler in British intelligence. This, this oh, is, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, this, just dropped the bomb on us here. Yeah, this is <laughs> yeah, this is coming out now. Uh, Alistair Crowley was a double agent employed by the Crown of England, um, yeah. and and Ian Fleming was his handler within British intelligence. Point of you know point of fact, uh, and this is a great story. Was 
when this is a true story when when in World War II in 19 I want to say 41 when Rudolf Hess who was Hitler's deputy flew to Scotland on his botched peace effort when the British captured him they put him in the Tower of London and this is a true story Alistair Crowley went to Ian Fleming and said to Fleming he said listen you know we know that the Nazi hierarchy is involved with the occult you know like you know they like astrology we know Himmler was heavily involved with the occult Rudolf Hess himself was Hitler was influenced by this Crowley said to, to Fleming he said listen let me add Hess he said you know I'll perform these Goetia demonic rituals we'll just scare the living hell out of this guy you know we can extract information out of him that you know British intelligence can use to try to destroy the Nazi hierarchy depending on who you want to listen to the general consensus is the meeting never took place but um, there is some evidence to say, suggest it did. But, yeah, Fleming was uh, Alistair Crowley's handler in British intelligence. Well, I mean, Rudolf Hess was kind of messed up, you know, after the war. Oh. So maybe they maybe they did something. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, the, the, I mean, Crowley wanted to perform Goetia magic in front, of, in front of Hess to summon demons to scare the hell out of the guy. Um, <laughs> you know, you'd be surprised. These guys in intelligence, um, you know, they're all for this stuff. Um, another guy who was involved in the same group um, was was a guy involved in British intelligence. He's lesser known than Fleming. Um, was a guy named Dennis Wheatley, um, and I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with his work, but Wheatley um, Wheatley wrote wrote a series of spy novels as well. Um, and the, the spy guy and the spy in that is named Gregory Salust, um, and he serves as an inspiration for Bond, but. Um, Wheatley also wrote a, a story called The Devil Rides Out, which was made into a movie by Hammer Studios. Um, and in The Devil Rides Out, there's a character who is this black magic magician named Mokata. Um, and, and Mokata is clearly Aleister Crowley. Um, and, you know, Crowley had lunch with Wheatley and knew Wheatley as well. Um, so if you want to see Aleister Crowley on film, take a look at the movie The Devil Rides Out. Um, the Charles Gray character of Mokata is a clear representation of uh, the great beast himself. That Aleister Crowley, he just gets around everywhere. Oh yeah, yeah that's yeah. that's that's Luke's idol, by the way. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> no. <laughs> I want to ask you too, in the time that we have remaining, um, you do have some things in the book about, uh, and I think that you said that you're working on a book um, about some of the connections of, you know, the the world of art symbolism, but also it, specifically, but also. Um, in general, Masonic symbolism that is in movies. Absolutely. The, the final chapter of the book is called So Dark the Con of Man, which, is a, which I lifted from the Da Vinci Code. Um, yeah. the, the final chapter deals with some excuse me, Enochian Masonic solarisms in film. I do some of the hidden symbolism of the, Royal, or excuse me, of the National Treasure movie. Um, for example, the, whole national, the first National Treasure movie is the Royal Arts Ceremonial. It's the recovery of the treasure vault under the holy ground. Um, I get into some of the um, you know symbolism with the movie Excalibur, which was the King Arthur legend. That's a solar you know solar allegory from start to finish. Um, the Being There movie with Peter Sellers is another solar symbol you know symbolic movie, where Chauncey Gardner is this symbolic sun or sun man who just talks about the solstices and equinoxes. You know, and again, hangs around with the first woman who is Eve Brand, you know, bears the name of the first woman. Then you've got the concepts of death and resurrection with the guy being put into the Masonic Egyptian tomb at the end, which is the, um, 
you know, which is the back to the one dollar bill, which is the ob- or excuse me, the reverse of the Great Seal. So yeah, I got into some Masonic and you know symbolism, you know, this occult iconography in movies. I'm actually finished a book that should be out in the next two to three months called Cinema Symbolism, where I take this even further. Um, and I get into movies. I, you know, I talk about. You know, I, I do some Masonic stuff, but I get into hidden, you know, numerology, Kabbalah, Jungian archetypes, tarot cards, mystery, mysticism, numerology, um, you know, hidden symbols in things like the Exorcist movie, um, the Omen trilogy, mm. the Back to the Future movies, Star Wars, um, Black Swan has a lot going on in it. Um, you know, and it's a whole new book, um, and that'll be coming out. It's called Cinema Symbolism: A Guide. Um, to esoteric imagery in popular movies. Um, I'm targeting an April-May release date on that of this year, um, and it's a continuation um, of the final chapter of the Royal Arch of Enoch book where I talk about, like, Da Vinci Code being there, National Treasure Films. Uh, the Ninth Gate is another one that's in the Royal Arch book that has a lot to do with um, Hebrew Kabbalah. There's a lot going on in that thing as well. Um, so, yeah, if you, like, if you like movie symbolism and occult symbolism in movies, definitely check out the Royal Arch of Enoch but you're absolutely going to love cinema symbolism. Um, interesting that you mentioned Black Swan, uh, because that director Darren Aronofsky has a new movie coming out at the end of the month, end of next month, called Noah. Right. And I have looked at. I haven't seen too much about it, but if you look at the cast list, and Aronofsky has had a lot of. Uh, you know, his first movie was called Pi, which is all about Kabbalah and all about numerology. Right, absolutely. Uh, the, um, you know, there's been some other movies that he's done. The Fountain comes to comes to mind, which is, which seems. Have you ever seen The Fountain, Luke? Mm-hmm. I, I, there's I, a lot of esotericism in that. I, I've uh, heard of it. I've not seen it, but I can tell you right now, Black Swan has tons going on in it. Um, yeah. You know, with dualism, with Jungian archetypes. Um, the confrontation of the shadow self, um, you will clearly see, pay attention to his use of mirrors in that thing. Um, all the main characters are introduced through their reflections, representing their darker halves. Um, you get into concepts. Um, this, is a, this actually turns up in another book I'm writing called Cinema Symbolism 2. Um, you'll have concepts relating to alchemy um, in Black Swan, of trans, you know, where she transforms herself into the bird. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you have a lot, a lot going on in Black Swan. I know he has the life of the Pi. The life of Pi has a lot to do with Kabbalah. Um, obviously, like you mentioned, the Noah movie, um, you know, coming out, you know, which is the flood story. Um, you know. Well, yeah, in that, he's in that in that movie. Uh, there's a lot. A lot's been kept, kind of kept under wraps of the movie. But if you look at Wikipedia and the cast list, and you look at the the characters. He is putting into the story Watcher Angels. He's got Simbiaza, Azazel, all those guys. Really? So it looks like he is borrowing from Book of Enoch. Yeah, maybe he read my book. Maybe he read uh maybe he read, read my book and decided to throw some stuff in. No, he could be very well borrowing from the book of Enoch because um well I, I want to say what, Enoch is what, Noah's great great grandfather? So, right. so yeah, I mean that wouldn't surprise me in, in, at, at all. I know that um, I know that um, there there is a there was a TV show on that's coming out for season two next next fall called Sleepy Hollow, um, and I, I swear that uh, some of the di- that has that they've got a lot of three Masonic elements in that, and I swear to you that I, I could that some of the dialogue sounds 
verbatim to some of the podcasts and some of the lines from the Royal Arch of Enoch book, but maybe it's just me flattering myself. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Well, thank you, Robert. Um, we want to. I really want to have you back on when you get the other book out, so we can kind of go into more detail about what's you know going on in movies. You know, uh, that's a that's kind of a big you know passion of mine too. And oh, uh, I, I do want to ask you though about uh, when we were talking about movies. Have you looked into Stanley Kubrick and some of his stuff? Oh yes. Especially 2001. Yes, yes. Um, the, the 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 Shining. I, get, I go into a heavy dosage of The Shining um, in, okay. and cinema symbolism. 2001 gets an honorable mention. Um, I'm doing more of 2001 in cinema symbolism too. Um, you know, with with Kubrick. You know, I mean, The Shining. The Shining is almost a total reversal of um, 2001, you know, like a dualistic reversal where, you know, 2001 is like the elevation of man's spirit to divinity, you know, and The Shining is his descent into brutal savagery. Um, but, yeah, you have a lot going on um, in, in The Shining, um, just briefly with, like, the Overlook Hotel, um, you know, represents the United States of America being built on the Indian burial ground. Um, you know, of course, as the United States was built on the Indian nations, um, pay attention when you watch The Shining. All the ghosts are opulent. The guy brags about how great the Overlook is and how, you know, all the best people are here. And, you know, you will constantly see the, the characters wearing red, white, and blue with derivatives of the two. Um, the, the one guy who manages the hotel has a little American flag on his desk. Before, um, before, before they get to the Overlook, Shelley Duvall and the little boy, Danny Lloyd, are literally dressed up as the American flag in their apartment. So, yeah, there's a lot going on in The Shining, um, and that's definitely something I cover in Cinema Symbolism. Well, the big one, and I mean, um, William Cooper, I don't know if you're familiar with William Cooper. He's long dead now, but he was a conspiracy theorist, and he believed that um, 2001 was basically the ancient mystery school's uh, he, what he was portraying it, it was basically the ancient mystery schools of the origin of man. Yeah, oh yeah, it, 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 you definitely get into, um, you know, with, with um, the concept of the origin of man, you know, and, you know what I suggest in the, in the cinema symbolism book is, you know, you know, the monoliths, you know, seem to represent, you know, on one level, you know, like Trilithon stone, um, you know, which would be Stonehenge, and is this secretly trying to, you know, reveal some sort of, you know, ancient, you know, true story, you know, extraterrestrial, you know, history of the origins of man. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's definitely, you know, one interpretation. And also, Eyes Wide Shut is another one. Yeah, I do Eyes Wide, I'm doing Eyes Wide Shut. I've got, I'm actually writing the cinema, cinema, let me just clarify, cinema symbolism is actually going to be out in probably the next two months, maybe three at the most. I don't see it going any longer than that. Um, I'm actually writing right now um, Cinema Symbolism 2, its sequel, um, and in this book I'm doing some of the Alan Moore material with like the Watchmen, V for Vendetta. But I've got a chapter, yeah. I've got a chapter in this in the second book called The Illuminati in Film, and one of the movies I'm doing is the uh, Eyes Wide Shut with Nicole Kidman and uh, um, uh, Tom Cruise. That goes back. Uh, Alan Moore definitely goes back to Aleister Crowley because he is a huge Crowley fan. Oh yeah, you got. In, you got Vita and Beta has a lot from Hell has a lot in it. Um, Watch, yeah. Watchmen is just a conspiracy cornucopia from start to finish. Yeah, it absolutely is. 
Well, Robert, we want to thank you for coming on the show. I mean, it has been incredible. I think my mind has been blown a couple of times. Definitely. Well, so, I, I want to thank you guys for having me on Conspiracy Normal. I definitely um, appreciate being absolutely. here. Absolutely. I would love to come back on your show um, when the movie book comes out, maybe three, four months. I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you an okay. email. Um, we could set something up. Um, maybe in the closing moments, I could just get my website out. Yeah, absolutely, please. Uh, yeah. Where people can reach you if they need to and uh, all that good stuff. Yeah, um, my website is www.robertwsullivanivy.com. That's the letters IV.com. My name is the fourth, Robert W. Sullivan the fourth. So my site is robertwsullivanivy.com. If you go there, there are links to purchase the Royal Arch of Enoch book. Um, it's an ebook format for 10 bucks. It's a 700 page book, so you can't go wrong. You can buy the oversized paperback, too. There are links there to my YouTube channel where you can watch other videos I produce and listen to other podcasts I've been on. Um, there's links to interact with me in all my social media, Facebook, um, you know, you know, Twitter, all that. Um, there's Facebook like pages for all my books, you know, where you can become a fan. Um, these pages are routinely updated, so you're going to want to go do that. And again, that's www.robertwsullivaniv.com. Um, and there's a link there on the um, right side um, to purchase the book. Um, the Royal Arch of Enoch book is available right now, and Cinema Symbolism will be out in the next um, two to three months. Well, Robert, I want to thank you for coming on, and uh, please hold on the line, and we're going to close out this part. And uh, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. All right. Uh, well, we are back on Conspiranormal. Um, I'm, my mind is totally blown. <laughs> it's a lot. There was a lot to digest there, and yeah. a lot of there's a lot of figures, a lot of dates, all, all of those, a lot of names. different groups that's all, going on. All of those names. Yeah. But uh, what were you most interested in during that whole? Um, Put you on the spot, man. Uh, well, what what I had um, b- before before we had the podcast tonight, like I, what I wanted answered is, uh, you know, I mentioned the caves in Cormoran, yeah, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and uh, what I wanted answered is if maybe the the parts of the scrolls that went missing, or I think I think it was actually several scrolls that they kept private. I wanted to know if those were maybe extensions of the Book of Enoch that were only uh, that only the uh, Masons had privilege to. Yeah, and that's what I was trying to get at with that question. Right, but I think you know he answered that pretty effectively. Mm-hmm. That it was probably a lot of that probably could have come from John D. Now where did he get it? That's that's the other question. Yeah. So there's probably information that was being uh, that was being handed down. I just pulled up the Book of Enoch's, okay, and oh, this is the, of course the Book of Knowledge, Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. And and before you get into that, yeah, uh, Adam and I had to pull the Bible out, and he had to show me that uh, in fact Enoch was not in Numbers. This is I just thought you misspoke at first, so I didn't really want to. Well, this is something that my moron friend at work uh, tried to convince me that uh, the Book of Enoch is irrelevant, and I believe that he made up that. Enoch is mentioned in the book of Numbers, which is not. Yeah, yeah I mean, the book of Numbers is later. So, yeah. I mean, whatever. He's, just when you see him, you know, he made you look stupid in front of the Grandmaster, just punch him in the face next time. <laughs> okay. Next time you see him. <laughs> but, Wikipedia uh, <clears throat> says, it is wholly extant only in the Gez language. I don't know how you say that, but that is um, the language of Ethiopia. 
with Aramaic fragments from the Dead Sea Scrolls and a few Greek and Latin fragments. So it is there have been some fragments. Yeah, I, I know that. Scrolls. Yeah, but because it's from that time period. The scrolls that were never published, though. Right. Um, I I mean I found basically the whole thing interesting. I mean, um, especially about the foundation of United States, maybe specifically Masonic Republic. Right. Now you know he is a Mason, so he probably would look at it that way. Uh-huh. You know, and of course, there's a lot of people on other sides would say that, uh, you know, the Masons all worship the devil and all worship Lucifer. Of course, because it's just ignorance. I mean, they don't. This is ignorance. It's just that's just ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then stuff about movies. Now, I'm real curious to see this Noah movie. I think that's going to be real interesting and we should probably get a whole group together of people to go see watch that. It. Yeah. See, so um, uh, and Adam is the big movie buff. You know, I, yeah, I told that's, him that that's, that's me. That's a section that I'm a little bit less interested in. I mean, the whole, the whole don't get me wrong, the whole interview was great, but... Luke, Luke likes movies like Teeth. I mean, that's like, <laughs> it's, it's like his favorite movie. I don't have to have deep and set <laughs> symbolism in my or, movies. Uh, what was the movie about the guy shooting people? Like Rampage? Rampage, yeah. yeah. Those are Luke's kind of movies. I like, it doesn't matter. I love all uh, genres of movies. I just like one every once in a while. It's just like pure entertainment. Right. So, you know, sometimes I like to shut my brain off and sometimes I actually like... And watch stuff like movie 43. (laughs) I I wouldn't watch that again. Uh, Yeah, man. We watched it the other night with my roommate here and it was just like, this is... Awful. Yeah. yeah. It's It's awful. It's not the best. But uh, next week we're going to do something a little different. We're going to just have just me and Luke. Mm-hmm. And we're going to try like a kind of experiment, which we haven't done in a while. Um, just had to guest cancel and had to move um, the show. Yeah. Um, we'll which, have we'll have the, that guest back in April. This is good anyway because I've, yeah. I've got a lot of things to talk about. Yeah, I do too. I've got a lot of things accumulated. Uh, one of which, you know, I kind of hit tonight with the Noah movie, but I'll, you know, there's other things I want to talk about, mm-hmm. such as like the haunting that went on in Gary, Indiana, which a lot of people have talked about, but they're kind of late to the game. But I, I could see, I could see Gary being haunted. <laughs> I could see the whole city being haunted. Yeah, I mean, have you been there? No, I've but, never been there. So uh, supposedly it's a cesspit. Yeah, a cesspool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's terrible. But. Uh, yeah, so we're going to do that next next time and put that out as, an, as the next show. Uh, hopefully on the 15th we'll have a guest. I'm going to try to get a, somebody on to talk a little bit about uh, your favorite guy, Mr. Crowley. Word. And, He's uh, not my favorite. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you all live the same lifestyle. Used to. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, then after that, we are going on a radio show ourselves called World of the Unexplained. Uh, we had Jay Scott on the show uh, back last uh, last February. And uh, we talked about uh, Chris's Obama shoes back then. And so we're going on his show, World of the Unexplained, which is one of my uh, favorite podcasts. And they've just restarted. So we're going to be guests on their show, and they're going to be guests on our show. It's kind of like a crossover. Cool. I'll so. start. I'll start eating healthy again and uh, no drinking a few days before the podcast, so I sound more intelligent. Yeah. yeah. Just, just start, just like rattling off, just not so different s- things. Not so scatterbrained all the time. Oh, dude, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, uh, 
But, you know, I, I'm kind of hard on myself when speaking on, on the podcast, but I hear some of our guests sometimes uh, taking long pauses and, <laughs> and using a lot of those uh, as a speech term I can't think of, but, you know, fillers in the conversation so that they can give their time, they give their brain time to collect. Yeah, that's what you kind of have to do. Yeah. I've, I've noticed. And if there's a long pause or something, you know, it can always edit this out because we're not, we're not alive. Right, right. So, right. you know. But uh, I think I'm going to call it a night. I think it's a really good show. And uh, it's now 7.33 in the p.m. Central time. There you go. <laughs> 33 again. Anyway, so you want to close this out, Luke? Yeah. Uh, join us next time on Conspiranormal. Yeah. Get it. Two chains.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park 